The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Thank you so much for joining us today on Afternoons with Mike here on the Shepherd Radio Network. Well, there's been lots and lots of news this past couple of years dealing with the whole sexual identity, the gender fluidity, you name whatever aspect that you want to call it. It's been in the news and there have been no shortage of uh, stories and situations in schools, in colleges, uh, even in workplaces where things have been just kind of in upside down, let's say, to what our historical curriculums and practices would be. Well, there's been a recent uh, kind of move in Minnesota that I thought you guys would love to hear about. It's a good piece of news for us. A Minnesota school district urged to grant opt-outs for sexual curriculum for families who oppose that teaching. And so that's at least a step in the right direction. On the line to talk with me about this is Kayla Tony. Kayla is an associate counsel with First Liberty. Kayla, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So this is good. And, uh, you know, let's, if you can, fill in the, the details about this Minnesota case. Yes, we represent six Somali families who immigrated to the Minneapolis area, seeking a better life for their children, seeking uh, religious freedom and educational opportunities. And they were heartbroken to learn just a few weeks ago that their children were being indoctrinated with books that promote LGBTQ identities that directly violate Um, these parents' Muslim faith. And so we have asked the school district to grant them opt-outs to give them advance notice and allow their children to have alternative learning when these topics are discussed because um, their children are only eight years old and they're just too young, um, the parents believe, to encounter these topics outside their home. Mm -hmm. Um, No, go ahead. And so we've asked the school district to give them advance notice and opt out. In our first letter on November 2nd, um, we described all the ways that um, teaching children principles that violate their faith, um, you know, it, it goes against the Constitution, the First Amendment, as well as Minnesota law, which requires parental opt outs. Um, so after our first letter, the school district took a positive step and developed an alternative learning procedure where parents can request um, that their children be opted out of certain books. However, the district did not tell our clients which books were coming next. And so the procedure does not give them the advance notice that they need in order to effectively opt their kids out. Um, We also have some concerns about the district's procedure because it's very complicated difficult for families to understand, especially if English is not their first language, and it requires parents to describe their religious beliefs in detail, and that opens them up to even more hostility than they've already experienced. So we sent a second letter on December 7, um, just last week, asking the district to fix these problems, or else we will need to go to court. You know, what a a terrible thing, isn't it, to have to threaten 
court action with a school district in one of our United States. It, it's, it really does not seem like this should be the case at all. You know, th- this whole thing that uh, this represents brings up a lot of questions, and I think a lot of our listeners would be hearing this, finding out that you, in this case, number one, I applaud you for representing all people of faith, not just those of of, uh, the belief of Christianity, but here you've got some Muslim families that you're representing, and their rights have been nullified, as well as a lot of just uh, a believer's rights here in the United States that have been here for many, many years. Uh, Do you see, uh, were they leaning in because this group of people were Muslim, or is that pretty much, that wasn't a consideration at all for them? You know, it's hard to say. This particular school district, like a lot of districts, talks a lot about diversity and inclusion, but our clients have not experienced respect for their faith or respect for even their their ethnicity. Um, and so we, we are asking the district to be consistent here and to, you know, extend principles of diversity and inclusion to our clients and their religious beliefs. And, you know, the interesting thing is we do really see this parental rights issue to be so important to parents of all different beliefs. You know, I've talked with Hindu coalitions, with Jewish organizations, Muslim clients here, Christian clients and other matters. And they all feel the same that, you know, as parents, they have a God-given right to raise their children, to teach their children in accordance with their faith. And the school should not be directly undermining that by teaching theories and and promoting identities and ideologies that undermine those principles. And so it's been encouraging actually to see the consensus around these types of issues and how, you know, parents of really diverse religious backgrounds can all kind of come together and and express concern um, over these issues. And I do think that sends a strong message to school districts because they do have an obligation to respect the religious freedom of all the families in their district. And we're just holding them accountable. Yeah, they need to be held accountable. You know, when we think back to Loudoun, Virginia, when all of the uproar happened a couple of years ago now, with those parents that were attending school board meetings, feeling like nobody in the school board, nobody in the schools themselves, administrative-wise, was even paying them attention as parents. And, you know, since then, I know you've heard it as well. There are people who are part of this progressive left uh, direction that would feel that when you put your kid, I mean, I heard a teacher say this just recently in the news. When you put your child, they said, in a public school, the parent gives up all rights. And that That is that's incredible. uh, That's radical. And that's not what the law says at all. No. Um, Yeah, the, the children still absolutely belong to the parents. And the reality here, too, is that most parents don't have alternatives available. I mean, a lot of these women, they're single. Some of them are single moms. They're working moms. They can't afford private education. And as Muslims, it would be confusing on a different level to send their children to, you know, a Christian school or a Jewish school. And so they don't, they really don't have other options. And so to, to look at a group of clients like ours and say that, you know, they have no business knowing what their kids are learning or having any influence, it's, it's very disrespectful. Um, and it's not what the law requires. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned board meetings. Um, our clients have been going to board meetings consistently. And at one in October, 
um, one of the board members sort of came after our clients and, and said that she felt, you know, very disrespected by them and that she wasn't going anywhere, sort of implying that they as immigrant moms needed to go needed to go back to where oh they came my, from and that was yeah. that was so hard for our clients to experience and it also violated the first amendment because the supreme court has consistently held that um, when government yeah. officials demonstrate hostility toward your faith or your religious beliefs that's an automatic violation of the first amendment um, and unfortunately that that's what our clients experience but we're so um you know impressed by just their courage and consistent willingness to speak up to do what's right for their kids well, I think everyone, and believers of uh, all faiths, uh, I know Christianity is right under the focus of a lot of uh, the, the arrows being pointed at it from the left. But really, uh, we all need to be concerned about this, not just in Minnesota or Michigan. Now, those two northern states, of course, they're in the news regularly because of the Congress people that are representing those areas, and th those are obviously decidedly going progressively left. But this again is part of our country, and I, I think it's a wake up call for us all that people in schools are teaching, they are indeed teaching things that are functional indoctrination to beliefs and systems of uh, of gender and ideas about gender and lgbtq characters and themes they're they're teaching this thing like you said earlier as fact as proven when these are just ideas that are are not part of historical uh, even american life wouldn't you agree I would. And they're also just not age appropriate. Um, the children here are, you know, anywhere from seven to nine years old. They're just too young to understand the complexities of, you know, a teacher's viewpoint that might conflict with their parents' viewpoints that they're learning at home. They don't have the the mental maturity to understand right, that, nor right. should they be exposed to concepts about sexuality. And I think that's an important point here. Um, something we've heard from the school district is, well, it's important for children to be exposed to you know, different characters so that they learn to be inclusive. But this is more than just characters that are LGBT. It's the classroom discussions that are promoting these identities as, you know, heroic and something to be applauded and also encouraging children to question their own gender identity. One of the books is called My Shadow is Pink, and it's about a little boy who wants to wear a dress to school and his father is initially hesitant, and then his father puts on a dress and applauds the little boy's choice to wear a dress to school. Oh my goodness. And I mean, this is this is really concerning. And for seven and eight-year-olds to hear this, they're going to imitate, they're going to mimic. Um, that's just what children do. And they're just not mature enough to encounter these issues, especially outside their parents' knowledge and support. Yeah. You know, I think what they would say and this would be, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. These that would be trying to teach such a thing, they would say, I think they would say, that they're being mindful of those who are, let's say, struggling with their identities and, you know, which, you know, that sounds plausible, but that is actually not what they're doing. They're actually sowing seeds of doubt, seeds of question in the hearts and minds of kids who are way too young, like you said, to be hearing this stuff.
So it's not like we're responding to something that's already there. Is this not just dropping seeds into something and finding the shoots of, of whatever those thoughts are coming up in the life and the mind of the child? That can certainly be part of it. I do think in some ways it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think, too, children are just so vulnerable to peer pressure that, you know, this sudden recent explosion of children that are wrestling with gender identity, um, it's really unprecedented. And it's it's unfortunate how schools are handling this because most school officials are not trained in issues of gender dysphoria. They, you know, they're not trained psychologists or counselors. They don't have the resources um, to actually be able to partner with parents and develop a holistic treatment for children who actually do struggle with gender dysphoria. And so the rush to affirm or else, you know, is is really um, unfortunate because it can push kids in a direction that's not helpful for them. And it excludes parents, which is, you know, a violation of parental rights. So for these people that are pushing this stuff in the schools in Minnesota, how high up the ladder of, of authority? I really like what you said about accountability. But if you think about those that need to be accountable, how high up the food chain, if you will, would you have to go, do you think, Kayla, to find, let's say, the source? Where's this coming from, in other words? Is this the local teaching group in Minnesota, the the educational department there? But I have a feeling it's much, much higher up, maybe all the way to where you're part of the world in D.C. Would What do you think about that? Right. There is certainly some nationwide influence. There's some advocacy organizations that are pushing, for example, um, gender identity guidelines for schools that recommend or require that parents be excluded from decisions about gender identity. And if you want to look up more about this, um, Parents Defending Education has a really great website with a map. It's called the Indoctrination Map, and it actually shows all the school policies in all different states. So you can kind of look up and see what's happening in your state or in your district. Um, But we also think at the state level, the Minnesota School Boards Association has had a fair amount of activism and, you know, just pushing LGBTQ mm-hmm. ideas. Um, and, and the great thing about the state level is that Minnesota law, there's a very strong state opt-out law. And that's really what our clients are relying on here, in addition to the First Amendment, um, because that law requires advance notice to parents, and parents can opt out of teaching on any topic. Um, and they don't have to give a reason. They don't have to explain or open themselves up to hostility. It can just be a very simple note at the beginning of the school year that, you know, these are the topics my child won't be participating in. And I would encourage any listeners to look up your own state laws because there are 32 states that require opt-outs, at least for teaching about sexuality. Wow. Um, and so a lot of this teaching is happening in the sex ed units. But some of it, as we're seeing with our clients, happens in English class or in other classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in many states, you can still request an opt-out and you have the right to that. And so I think that's a great way for parents to you know, get involved and um, be educated about what their kids are learning. Because it's not that the parents are trying to change the curriculum or impose their viewpoints on others. It's simply this ability for religious people to you know step away during mm-hmm. a certain teaching topic and have their children learn something else without ramification without being isolated and targeted and called troublemakers or whatever like that so this is pretty much open then to anyone who would really feel 
uh, and opt out because of uh, religious beliefs and convictions. Do you see this happening in other areas than just Minnesota, this ability to drop or to opt out of a class like that? We do, yes. There's another case developing in Maryland. Um, it's called Mahmood versus McKnight, and it's against the Montgomery County Board of Education. And in that case, a coalition of Muslim parents and Orthodox Christians are asking for notice and the ability to opt out. And these are um, pride storybooks that are for young children, kind of similar to the books that I described mm-hmm. in our case. Um, and that case, unfortunately, the district's court found that parents could not opt their children out. Um, And it was a a terrible decision. It's on appeal at the Fourth Circuit right now. So that's another one to watch. Um, And we do think that these outcomes are really going to differ depending on the jurisdiction. Um, If it's in a place where the courts tend to be protective of religious liberty, cases are going to fare better. And if it's not, then, you know, that could develop a circuit split. But honestly, these parental rights issues are so important. We think the Supreme Court will eventually need to weigh in. Um, to resolve disputes between the circuits and just to make clear that free exercise rights are in the Constitution. They need to be protected. They apply to parents in the home. And a perfect example of how free exercise can work in everyday life is an opt-out where parents can simply express, I'd rather have alternative learning for my child. Mm -hmm. The school day is not disrupted and no one's beliefs are violated. It's pretty simple. I'm not a legal expert like you, but you know, I've seen times, at least from my standpoint, it looks like the Supreme Court on some of their rulings, they've been rather inconsistent in terms of agreeing to see some things that you thought they would have and hear the case. Others, they jump on and do a marvelous job. Uh, but I'm just wondering, do you think they would punt on something like this? What would your thoughts be? My hope is that if the right vehicle comes to the Supreme Court, Um, that they would grant it. I think the difficult thing about um, getting a case granted at the Supreme Court is that they're only able to hear about 6% of the petitions that come. Right. Um, One thing that First Liberty does is we're very strategic about which cases we bring. um, And we try to get a lot of amicus briefs in support of even our cert petition. So even Mm -hmm. before our petitions granted, we try to get a lot of amicus briefs. And we have found that that really helps in getting the court to at least consider Um, So, for example, our um, Groff versus DeJoy win last year, um, we had, I believe, 10 amicus briefs even at the petition stage before the court decided to grant. And we had, you know, all different faith groups that were coming together saying the court needed to fix the standard for religious accommodations in the workplace. And um, the court agreed and unanimously they, you know, they fixed that standard. Um, so that's just an example of how, you know, it takes the right case and at the right time right. Um, to get the courts to grant. And, um, you know, ultimately, we never really know which ones they're going to look at. But we do think it helps when there's a lot of amicus support. And it also helps when there's a nationwide um, issue that's arising. And I do think parental rights is becoming more and more um, of a hot button issue. And, yes. you know, people of all faiths are certainly affected. It needs to be a hot button issue. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Kayla Tony, mm-hmm. Associate Counsel at First Liberty. Give us the website where people can read about what's going on. Yes, firstliberty.org. You can read about all of our great cases and clients and find out ways to get involved. Thank you, Kayla, for being with me. I so appreciate it. Very interesting and very important stuff. Friends, we'll be back. This is Afternoons with Mike. See you on the other side of the break. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, 
EC Waters is a top train comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Palm Beach Atlantic University Orlando offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. Welcome back. And on the line with me, I've got a first-time caller in for this interview. He's an author. His name is Micah Van Hus. He's from the Tennessee area, uh, just a gorgeous part of Tennessee, I might add. I get to drive up through there about once a year, and it is so nice up there. Micah has written a book on secret societies, and all of this looks and sounds very interesting. Micah, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's good to be here. You know, this and looking over the material, I know your book is not out yet. It's going to be out in the spring, March or so. Uh, yes, sir. Released in March. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, about, um, I mean, even the cover that I see here, Secret Societies, you've got a knight, uh, looks like a Templar knight on a uh, on a horse, I believe. And, or maybe, no, maybe he's just standing there. I, I can't tell. This is pretty crazy. In the background, we have the triangle with the eye. Uh, and and I'm, it occurs to me, Micah, that as I'm thinking about this, when I think of secret societies and uh, images like this, uh, I think most Americans know the most about Freemasons from watching National Treasure. <laughs> I, yeah, don't, yes, sir. I don't really think this is pushed in today's uh, educational settings. I really <laughs> doubt it very much. So a lot of people really don't know even the basis about masonry, about Freemasons, what it means, uh, the role of secrecy that is played. I know I've heard about that. My own uncle was a Mason and I knew very little, almost nothing about what he did. He never talked about it. It was understood in our family that you don't ask Uncle Frank about uh, what he does. And that was it. So I, yes, you know, I think that kind of secrecy is still out there, isn't it? It is absolutely. And, and the, the Freemasons are a lot of things, um, a lot of things, different people. Um, uh, they are foremost a, a club of, of brothers, um, a brotherhood that uh, gets together. Um, but um, as with um, most secret societies and most organizations, uh, when it gets to this realm, um, just because you are a member or initiate does not mean that you know what is really going on up in the upper ranks, the 33rd degree of Mason. And so uh, when I wrote Secret Societies, uh, I wrote it from the perspective. I, I produce marginal mysteries for Southwest Radio Ministries. Um, so um, I write my books from a Christian perspective. Yeah. Um, what, what is going on here uh, is these secret societies, they have a secret that has been passed on for thousands of years since before the flood of Noah. Uh, so what am I talking about? Well, it starts with the watchers in Genesis chapter 6, descending in, in the book of Enoch, not in the scripture, uh, teaching forbidden knowledge to mankind. Well, the sons of Lamech, which are mentioned in Genesis chapter 4, uh, they knew that God would destroy the earth with either fire or water, but they didn't know which. 
So according to almost a dozen ancient texts, not the Bible, almost a dozen ancient texts say that they recorded that knowledge on one pillar to survive water, one pillar to survive fire, uh, and one of them did. So Hermes, the Greek god Hermes, found one of the pillars after the flood, and he shared that knowledge with Nimrod. And, of course, we read about Nimrod in Scripture, and he Mm -hmm. builds Babylon. Uh, Scripture never says he builds the Tower of Babel, though uh, three ancient sources say that he built the Tower of Babel. Either way, Nimrod uh, created the first anti-God society after the flood. What did God tell Noah and his sons to do after the flood? Mm. Be fruitful and and multiply. multiply. Yeah. What does Nimrod do? He pulls the people together into one location, and they build the tower so that they would not be spread throughout the earth. That's literally what Scripture says, what King James Mm -hmm. says. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, Nimrod uses this knowledge of the watchers, geometry, uh, the sacred sacred knowledge that the Masons hold dear. So um, let me skip a little bit and say, talk about the Masons. Uh, The Masons, you'll find two camps. The public face, as with any secret society that has the princes of the power of the air behind their leadership, in their public face, they say that they come from Solomon. Solomon was a wise man. He had uh, great building techniques built the temple, uh, whereas the Regis manuscript from the year 1390 A.D. says that Nimrod was the first excellent grandmaster of the Masons, and he hired uh, Masonic brothers to build his empire, to build his ziggurats uh, as he expanded eastward. Uh, and so uh, depending on which camp you go to of the Masons and Freemasonry, uh, they will claim both. Um, but what's really going on is this knowledge is being passed, not just through Freemasonry, uh, through the Catholic Church, uh, through uh, all kinds of, of different societies, through uh, all the, the religions from Hermeticism to Enlightenment to uh, humankind, the New Age movement. These groups are working to usher in a final battle against the quote-unquote oppressive God of the Bible. And we know that as Christians as the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, so that's, they're going to get their wish. They're going to succeed in ushering in the battle. Uh, the outcome is not going to be what they think. Now, a lot of people that I grew up with would have thought and would have said of the Masons, because again, in my area, I knew of a lot of people who were involved in it. Every year, there was the big uh, shrine circus that was put on by the Masonic Lodge, and just about everybody in the city went to see this event. And, uh, you know, we thought the guys that wore the little weird hats that the Masons wore uh, the Shriners, we know about the Shriners Hospital. So on one side, there's this face about the Mas- the Masonic Lodge that is kind of a, a good thing. They, they seem like they come over uh, as caring people. They are doing things from a benevolent standpoint. And yet what I'm hearing you say, uh, you're talking about the root of all of this. is, is uh, It's poised itself completely against God and is aiming at that final judgment battle, right? Yes, sir. And of course, again, I'm speaking about the leadership, uh, the 33rd degree, the people who are in charge uh, of the Freemasons. Uh, We're talking about the highest level. Again, the initiates and low-level members of any group uh, don't necessarily know Mm -hmm. what's going on. And that's the same as what we see, why people call these things conspiracy theories, because there's always the public face, which looks good, giving to charities, uh, doing these other things, But then there's always uh, what's going on behind the scenes if it is an organization that is controlled by the princes of the power of the air against which we are warring until the return of Christ. Um, On a little quick side note, uh, most Christians believe, uh, think that Jesus came to save us from sin as humans. That is uh, one of the three things that Jesus came to do, and I'm very thankful for that. 
that is most important for everybody to understand. Jesus came to save us from our sins. There were two other things that Jesus came to do. One was reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel. Uh, the other was to defeat the princes of the power of the air. He does so in First Colossians. Uh, he says, I have defeated these powers. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, at the Tower of Babel, let me talk about the language real quick. So uh, one of the premises throughout my book, Secret Societies, is that Nimrod uh, is the ancient god. The mystery religion of Babylon is this religion of enlightenment that so many people are searching for these days, uh, theosophy, um, um, far, uh, going back to Nazism, um, all kinds of things, trying to enlighten, to have mankind become gods themselves. That is what is supposed to happen after the Battle of Armageddon. So at the Tower of Babel, you have all the world speaking a language. Mm-hmm. And then instantaneously, they're speaking 70 different languages. That's Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7, 8, and 9. Uh, God divides the world into 70 nations. Instantaneously, you have all these people speaking 70 different languages. Well, Nimrod was their god. What do you have? You instantaneously have 70 different names for Nimrod. Osiris, he becomes Cupid in Roman mythology. So it's an interesting, uh, that was kind of a side point. But anyway, uh, the world's divided, 70 different languages. What happens happens when Jesus sends his disciples, his 70 disciples out into the world? Every nation hears them speak in their own language language. So Jesus not only saved us from our sins, he reversed the curse of Babel and he defeated the princes of the powers of the air. Wow. That is uh that's an amazing understanding that you're giving us right there about <laughs> the tie-in between that uh, division of languages and then what was the event of Pentecost when all of the believers heard other people speaking in their own tongue, their own language and understanding it even though these people did not have that ability in themselves or from their education. So that's pretty yes, uh, that's pretty amazing. I don't know that I've heard that tie-in before. Obviously, yes, to uh, do number one and number three on your list, but that is very interesting. Now, one of the subject matters of your book is the Illuminati. Tell us about that. Yes, sir. The Illuminati are not as big of a deal as people, well, from what I've found out, not that I know everything. Um, what I can what I can gather. See, I had a whole chapter set out for the Illuminati when I first started writing this book, and they ended up in kind of a, a minor secret societies chapter as a section of it. Um, now, a lot of people, when they think of anything secret, anything behind the scenes, the Illuminati gets credit for it these days. But the Illuminati was only around for about twenty to thirty years uh, back in the late seventeen hundreds. Um, there's a fascinating uh, letters um, from George Washington and another gentleman uh, talking about the Illuminati, and George Washington said, I'm not worried about it. So what the Illuminati were trying to do is they were trying to piggyback on Freemasonry. Uh, When they first started, they sent a bunch of members into Freemason uh, lodges and tried to get them to recruit for the Illuminati. The Illuminati were outlawed uh, by the European governments, um, so they didn't last very long. Um, And so the Illuminati... In my opinion, not as big of a deal as people like to make it think, though you can talk about it as kind of a coverall for the secret societies and the conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did touch on one point uh, I wanted to point out. It was we talked about it a little bit earlier about, you know, are the, is Freemasonry good? Is Freemasonry bad? Well, at the founding of our country, George Washington was very obviously a Freemason. Benjamin Franklin was a Freemason. And what we have at the founding of our country, George Washington was a Freemason that wanted America to be founded on the ideals of God, the holy God of Scripture. Benjamin Franklin wanted the country founded on enlightenment and mankind becoming God. 
Um, that is why um, we have unalienable rights, um, not specifically naming the, the God of the Bible. So it was kind of a struggle there at the beginning of the United States. So a question uh, that I do answer in the book, no, I don't think Freemasonry has control of the United States. They obviously have an influence on our founding, um, but um, the good version, George Washington's version, won out over what Benjamin mm. Franklin wanted us to do. Again, very interesting. Now, yes, uh, the, I brought up this this whole allusion to uh, alluding to the uh, the movie that Nicolas Cage put on National Treasure, and Masonry has talked about that. Freemasons, in particular, and uh, one of the characters. It's revealed toward the end of the movie that. Uh, this investigator, I think with the FBI, is himself a, a Freemason. When you, as someone that has studied this the way you have, what is your take on how all of that was represented in that movie? Well, I, I, to be honest with you, it's been 15 years since I've seen the movie. It was very entertaining, uh, though I, I haven't watched it since I've been studying this stuff. Um, so I don't know that I can specifically uh, answer. Um, I think, let's see, we're talking about treasures. We're talking about Declaration of Independence. Yeah, um, the tie-in, the, the the secret society that held the gold and the treasures, and they mm. hid it all away, and it was all in the, the clues were everywhere, including the back okay. of the Declaration of Independence itself. Right. So, so that gets a, a lot more into the Knights Templar and the treasures of the Knights Templar. Um, and, of course, when it comes to the backside of the dollar bill and all the symbolism, mm -hmm. the 13 layers of the unfinished pyramid, the all-seeing eye of providence, uh, looking over uh, what we have built and seeing that it is good, um, the, just the different the things going on in, in the symbolism. Um, you know, a lot of people will see uh, patterns in the streets of Washington, D.C. I mean, I think you can see patterns in the streets of most cities. So I think a bit of that is uh, conspiracy theories that, may not uh, be true. They may be true. Um, I don't, I don't know everything. There's very little I don't know actually, but um, we get a lot into the Knights Templar uh, when we're talking about the treasure. And of course I have a whole chapter on the Knights Templar um, and the, the, the treasure that they found supposedly buried in Solomon's temple uh, when they uh, were given Solomon's temple as their headquarters in the crusades. Um, that treasure makes its way up to Scotland and eventually over to Nova Scotia where we get the uh, documentary um, Curse of Oak Island. Um, where uh, the Knights Templar actually probably buried treasure um, over in Scotland on one of the paintings. Um, it's also in France. The paintings in France, the, the statues in Scotland, um, the code, the DM code on the statue actually spells out Acadia. Well, Acadia is actually the ancient name for Nova Scotia. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's interesting symbolism. It's, it's fun to study um, all kinds of things from the, the Ark of the Covenant um, supposedly buried in England. Um, then we get a little bit into the Holy Grail and the, the story of King Arthur. Um, did the Knights Templar actually bring the Holy Grail up to um, England? And of course, mm. the Holy Grail in and of itself gets blown out of proportion. It's, it's a cup mentioned passingly in Scripture. Jesus took the cup, and that's really all Scripture says about it. Mm -hmm. But in, in this time of, of crusades and trying to come up with something that is holy, something to give uh, people a reason to fight for the Holy Grail all of a sudden becomes this amazing thing, which, you know, great literature around it, great fantasy around it. Um, but yeah, so yeah, a little bit on the, the treasure gets into the Knights Templar. One of the most important things that uh, I think people question about all of these topics, and they see it every day on the back of a dollar bill. You mentioned that already. These different symbols, what, from your standpoint, Micah, what do these symbols or what did they mean 
to the original uh, people who cast these images on these dollar bills? So it was um, a lot of uh, symbolism, uh, just like Freemasonry loves symbolism. Uh, as we talked about earlier, the unfinished pyramid uh, with the all-seeing eye represents the unfinished work of the United States of America um, and God's overwatching uh, their project and their progress. Um, you know, that can be taken in a completely innocent way, a uh, completely holy way, or it can be taken as Freemasonry symbolism, um, however folks want to take it. Um, then we get into the the backside of the Great Seal um, with the uh, eagle and the number 13 appearing all over. Um, 13 uh, kind of takes us into the bloodlines of the quote-unquote Illuminati, the bloodlines who are carrying this knowledge across that gets into the World Economic Forum and, and Klaus Schwab. Um, but 13 doesn't necessarily have to mean that. Obviously, it's the 13 uh, colonies uh, from which we were founded. Mm-hmm. Um, but fascinating symbolism for sure. It really is. And again, uh, most of us, it's either lost in our education or it was never presented to us about the depth of what these things are and what they mean. And, you know, it is interesting that there's a, a kind of an explanation in one sense of the word about the, uh, the, the all-seeing eye and seeing that the things that have happened in this country, that's kind of the general understanding that you just said is that it was good, right? Yes, sir. Um, absolutely. The United States of America is the shining city on the hill that Ronald Reagan talked about. Um, we are um, on the physical world, the light of the physical world, not the spiritual world. Um, but, um, yes, America has done a lot of, of good. Um, I know firsthand from my time in Iraq as a Marine. So, um, yeah, America is worth fighting for. Well, it is. And we've got one minute left. Tell us a little bit about that. I know that you were trained as a sniper of all things. Tell us about that in, in one minute. Most boring job in the world. <laughs> you, sit, you sit in one spot for 24, 48 hours waiting oh. for something to happen. No, it was, um, it was a good experience. Um, I've, I've been a Christian since I was seven. So I had no fear uh, over in Iraq. Uh, my combat deployment was Fallujah. So we, we, um, we got a lot of good work done. You know, that was back in, in the George Bush days when the media was trying to flame the United States for what we were, quote unquote, doing in Iraq. And my experience with the people of Iraq, we stayed in their houses. That's how we operated in a city. We took their houses and wouldn't let the family go. So we actually lived among the families um, whenever we would do a mission. And so they loved us. Um, except for the one house that had terrorists in it, but uh, that's a different story. That's they loved us; they cooked <laughs> for us. So, so yeah, it was a, it was a good experience uh, back shoot two thousand six, two thousand seven. That's a long time ago now. Uh, I know it was. Well, thank you for serving this country the way you did. My guest today is Micah Van Hus. He has written a book that will be out, and it's uh, going to be coming out in March called Secret Societies. I'll be back with him in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855 855- Four eight one nine zero nine five. Michael Van Huss has been with me for the last segment, and he's uh, carried over here with us for the balance of this program. So interesting, an author with a book coming out in the springtime, and it's called Secret Societies. Give us the address, how people can uh, go find out about your study, also order the book. 
marginalmysteries.com, marginalmysteries.com. Um, that's where you can find uh, the upcoming book, which is already ready for pre-order. My latest book, uh, The Earth As It Was, my speculation about the earth before the flood of Noah, where we talk about dinosaurs uh, and all kinds of uh, watchers and giants and all kinds of things going on. So marginalmysteries.com. Thank you, Mike. Man, that is, you just keep throwing all of this interesting uh, ideas out there. And I'm going to have to seek these books out and, and do a little checking on you. This is very cool. Now, how did um, a sniper uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, serving the country the way you did, how in the world or why in the world did you find yourself going toward the direction of doing what a lot of people would think is conspiracy theory would think that it's kind of a fascinating study, but they know very little about it, maybe even a bit suspicious of it. What caused you to go that direction? Well, Mike, I, I was saved at a very young age, at the age of seven, and I have always striven. I'm not perfect, but I've always striven to honor God. Uh, so I've always uh, been interested in Scripture and the things that God Obviously, he created everything, so everything we know is from God. But about 20 years ago, my older brother, Clayton Van Hus, who runs Affirm Ministries, it's an archaeological uh, ministry, um, he showed me Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, where uh, God chose Noah to survive the flood because he was perfect in his generations. Now, I was always taught, most Christians are taught, that God chose Noah to survive the flood because he was righteous. Yes, Noah was righteous, but that's not what Scripture says. The scripture in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men. We're talking about angels here. Saw the daughters of men, came into them, and had children with them. The same men were giants. Uh, there were giants on the earth in those days. So the angels, the fallen angels that chose to fall, uh, slept with women, uh, had giant offspring. That's the giants we see throughout scripture. Um, and then uh, God sends the flood to wipe out the corruption of these Nephilim and these watchers, they came in the days of Jared, which is the fifth generation from Adam. Uh, and God, and about four verses after he says, the angels were sleeping with women and having giant offspring, four verses later it says, and Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. So when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is King James. This is what the Bible's literally saying, that Noah was not tainted with the bloodline of the giants. Mm. And so once you grasp that and start to see what Genesis chapter six is talking about, Dude, I didn't, I didn't stop studying it for the last 20-some years now. <laughs> so that started you off on all of this? Yes, sir. Oh, that's so cool. And realizing that Noah was a man. He wasn't a perfect man. We all know that. And no one was but Jesus. But this is so, I believe, eye-opening for a lot of people who have wondered about that and why and how that we all came. Functionally, we all know we, we were from Adam originally. But then in a very real sense, because of the flood, we're from, we are also can look back to that very thing, Noah, and realize that we're kind of all part from that seed as well. Yes, sir. And, and if, I, if I may back it up with more scripture for another about 60 seconds. Um, so I take scripture, the King James, not the King James Version, but the scripture. What we have in the 66 books is the word of God and inspired by God. I don't take the book of Enoch as scripture. But there are ancient writings that show us some things that could have been going on. So the book of Enoch says that God sends a flood because of these watchers. He casts these watchers into prison until the great day of judgment. The book of Isaiah prophesies that these spirits in prison will be ministered unto. They will be visited. Well, you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18, 19, and 20. 
Jesus Christ dies on the cross in verse 18. He is of the spirit instead of in the flesh. So he's in the ground for three days. And the very first thing that Jesus does when he is in spirit form is he goes down into the prison and ministers mm-hmm. to the spirits that made trouble in the days of Noah. He more like proclaimed his victory to them. Uh, but anyway, you can back it up with scripture. Jude quotes uh, what's going on in the book of Enoch. So it's fascinating to back it up with scripture on and, both ends. And that, of course, that's from the Apocrypha, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. It is yeah. not inspired scripture. Yeah, but, right. Not inspired. Up. I just want to make sure everyone understands that yeah, yeah. there is not no in the scripture. Bible book of Enoch. So we no, just no. want to make sure that that's right. But you're right. And in, in, in your writings that I read, I also saw you quote one of my favorite study guys, and that was Josephus. You, you yes, uh, talk about him as well. And he offers a lot, not biblical, not, uh, or I should say not inspired the way the Bible is, but still very helpful history. History is like a puzzle. The Bible doesn't give us all the information. It gives us what we need, the story of Jesus Christ. And so I recommend that everybody knows uh, that story. But the, about other topics, like the giants, like the flood, the Bible doesn't give every puzzle piece. Well, there are other uh, books in history, whether it's, it's scriptural, whether it's talking about Christian things or not, just like Josephus, like you said, there's so many puzzle pieces you can put together and start to see a picture of what was really going on mm-hmm. in the antediluvian world and in the early world. Like I said, Josephus is one of the three resources that say that Nimrod built the Tower of Babel. So there's all kinds of things that connect back there. I agree. Now, there's something that in the balance of our time together, I've got to ask you about. <laughs> I saw a video. I've seen a couple of them. They they appear very troubling. They appear very dark. It's most always in the uh, cover of darkness in the nighttime hours. And uh, it is this thing called the Bohemian Grove. Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, American presidents have participated, even mm-hmm. recently, I might add. It's not like mm-hmm. uh, a generation ago or or a hundred years ago. What yep. in the world is the Bohemian <laughs> Grove and why would a president go to it? If you want to know, you got to buy the book, Secret Societies. No, I, I, won't, I won't leave you there. So, um, no, Bohemian Grove, it is a, a club uh, out in the redwoods of California. And uh, like Mike said, um, there are multiple presidents. And, and these are actually usually Republican presidents. Um, and, uh, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan have a famous photo at the Bohemian Grove. But at the Grove, it's not just a club for a good old boys club for who's who. They actually don robes, carry torches, and do a mock ceremony to a 30-foot concrete owl statue where they burn a human effigy in front of the statue. If you've heard of Alex Jones, this is what made Alex Jones famous. Him and his cameraman snuck into the Bohemian Grove in the year 2000, and they got a film of the cremation of care ceremony. Uh, And so the Bohemian Grove, it is odd. Um, Now, I, I was in politics for eight years. I served as a state representative, and I'm a conservative, so... I would call myself conservative before a Republican. So when I say that Republican presidents go to the Bohemian Grove, I'm not trying to bash one side. I was on uh, that side. Mm-hmm. So, right. um, so it's, You're it's just fascinating. Fact. <laughs> yes, sir. Bohemian Grove, uh, their motto is uh, whispering spiders enter not here. Uh, I probably mix that up a little bit. Whispering spiders uh, enter not here. And it, it's, um, you know, it, it's one of those mysterious clubs. We talk a little bit about it in the book, in the minor secret society chapter, along with skull and bones, uh, Illuminati, Um, We Mm -hmm. talk about some of the uh, child trafficking that is going on uh, here at the southern border and in the United States. So we talk about a number of those things uh, going on. 
Now, I have to pause and ask a follow-up question then. You, at this event that you're talking about, did did that come over intentionally, like what it sounded like it did, a sacrifice to that that statue? So, yes, God says, burn not your children to Moloch. Um, they don't call the statue Moloch, but they are burning a human effigy. Uh, and so, yes, they're, they're actually, they, they, uh, they have a table. It's got a wire frame of a human, and they pack it with uh, uh, hay and straw for this ceremony. And there are pictures online. In fact, Alex Jones' video shows it mm-hmm. of these guys. I, you don't I watched see, it. You don't yeah. see, yeah, yeah, you don't see any of the presidents in the video, but you, these guys donning robes looks very much like the Ku Klux Klan. They're holding torches, and they're burning a human effigy in front of a mm-hmm. 30-foot yeah. concrete owl statue. Now, since we're on that subject and you brought up something that we had talked about off of uh, the program here, the Ku Klux Klan. Now, would there be any tie in uh, with the Klan and with this these Knights of Templar? Or would they have uh, fashioned themselves in some way to a, a secret society like that? Um, yes, yes. In, in some ways now. There are a lot of societies who claim to be the remnants of the Knights Templar. Uh, there are a lot of societies uh, that, that claim that. So um, I think a lot of people see that as a semi-honorable thing. So um, they want to claim it. So no, the, the Knights Templar were not in line with the Ku Klux Klan. But uh, the Knights Templar actually have a lot more fingers into our history than people uh, know. In, uh, see, 1307 is when the Knights Templar were persecuted in France by King uh, Philip IV, and that's when they, quote-unquote, uh, disappeared. Mm-hmm. Actually, they became the, the Order of the Knights of Christ in Portugal. And then you'll notice when you look at the portraits of the explorers, um, Vasco da Gama, uh, Hernando de Soto, a number of the explorers who are coming to the United States, what do they have in their pictures? They have Templar crosses around their neck. What do what is depicted on Christopher Columbus's sails on his ships? Mm-hmm. They are Templar crosses. So no, the Knights Templar they went away in name only. They became the Order of the Knights of Christ, uh, and they actually uh, through Portugal, um, Portugal uh, meaning Port of the Grail. Um, that is how the Knights Templar spread across the world and implemented uh, their holy order. So you're saying Portugal gets its name from Port of the Grail. That is one of the theories. I forget the name. Not Baldwin. It's one of the kings um, wrote a cryptic uh, letter uh, to the Knights Templar, and Port Ugal uh, is Port of the Grail uh, in that letter. So that's one of the theories on how it's got its name. This, boys and girls, is what you can learn if you do a lot of reading. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Well, well, we have YouTube videos, MarginalMysteries.com. It links us to our YouTube page, and we got tons of videos on our YouTube page, Marginal Mysteries. All right, Marginal Mysteries. And again, you mentioned this earlier. You produce that for Southwest Radio Ministries. We carry Watchmen on the Wall right here on The Shepherd. Yes, sir. And I'm on Watchmen on the Wall twice a month. That's great. Great. Oh, my goodness. This, I'm just honored to have you here. Uh, I've talked, I've spoken with Edward Weber from there before yes, and a few of other the people that are from that organization. And uh, you guys are just doing a great work for the Lord. Uh, you know, you, again, as a Marine, always faithful, the core, that, they have that motto. And yet we are living in a time right now where it seems that a lot of our own government leaders when I think of the border, I think that they're not being anything but faithful to our country. What's going on? A person like you that's worked in the military, you've served, you've risked your life, you donned the uniform, you went over there to serve. What are your thoughts, Micah, as to what's going on in our country right now? 
Um, according to the powers that be, the princes of the power of the air, um, America needs to be taken down a notch. Mm. Uh, throughout history, um, the elitists have been fighting against the middle class. The United States has the strongest middle class in history, and they're trying to collapse the middle class. That's why people have not been able to succeed. The elites have not been able to succeed is because of the middle class, and they're trying to destroy it here in the United States. Um, that's the overall view. I don't know how detailed you want to get. Well, that's a big overall view. So you would see, uh, like what I think most people think, there there has to be a willingness to just turn a blind eye to the border and to, to realize that millions, not thousands, but millions of people are coming into this country right now illegally, and a lot of them are are known dangerous people. It's, it's, it's a lot of uh, lack of caring. We are a very entertained society, and that's part of the plan is to entertain us. And that's one of the dangers of being a prosperous nation. Mm-hmm. Um, when people, even in our personal lives, when we have a lot of money or something goes right, we start to lose focus of God. We start to read our Bible less. We start to pray less, at least in general. I'm not talking about everybody. And so we as a country have been prosperous for so long that we have lost sight of what's important. We've lost sight of God. Now we are entertained. We sit in mm-hmm. front of the television and watch movies. Who cares what's going on at the border as long as I've got my popcorn and my TV? So that is one of the dangers of being uh, entertained in a prosperous society. Yeah, I think of that uh, thing that I heard years ago. We are a country of amusement, and we all know that amuse, amuse means not to think. And that is exactly what you're, you, we are doing as a country, and that's what you're referring to. Uh, give us the website again for how people can find out more about your book and about your mission. I appreciate that, Mike. It's marginalmysteries.com, marginalmysteries.com. And uh, we study the mysteries of God's universe uh, from a biblical perspective, and we enjoy every moment of it. I've got my books for sale, T-shirts, and then also a YouTube channel. We've got all the social medias, but YouTube is where I put uh, most of the videos. So all kinds of awesome stuff. So grateful to have had you on the program, Mike. Uh, look forward to doing another one in the future with you. This Absolutely. is very interesting stuff. So when your book comes out in the, in March, we've got to talk about it, okay? Uh, yes, sir. I'm done with it, and we're just waiting for it to be published. We're kind of waiting until March to release it. All right. That's awesome. Micah Van Hus, my guest today. Uh, one more time. I got just enough time for that website. One more time. Marginalmysteries.com. All right. Thank you, Micah. And friends, thank you for being with us as well. We'll see you next time on Afternoons with Mike. <music>